So I want to share with you today from my heart about what the Lord has been opening to, to my understanding through his word lately. And uh, it's very interesting because the genesis of this sermon started here on Cape Cod. Uh, back in 2015 or 16, somewhere in there, um, I was ministering here with the Coast Guard and really enjoying that ministry, uh, enjoying being with you every Sabbath and worshiping here. And uh, we received a call to go to Brunswick, Maine, to pastor the church in Brunswick, Maine. And I had to go through a process of discernment and, and um, de determining the Lord's will, and I did that. I went through that process, and in that process, the Lord closed that door and said, no, I want you to remain in the military. And he handed off the Brunswick Church to another pastor who has led there. And, and, um, but in that process of the Lord saying, no, I would rather have you stay in the military, he also gave me another commission, so to speak, another mission. And that was, he said, I want you to start getting my people ready for what's coming. And, of course, that's a little broad. And he didn't say it to me verbally. It was just as I was studying, as I was praying, I was getting these impressions, and they kept being confirmed by what other people were saying. And, and I, I, I asked a little more, and I said, Lord, what do you mean by this? What, what does that mean? And he said, I haven't made you a chaplain for nothing. I haven't given you all this training on how to handle trauma, grief, and pain for no reason because my people are about to go through a great deal of trauma, grief, and pain, and I want them to be ready for what's coming. So, uh, now my ministry specializes in helping people prepare for and handle and go through trauma, grief, and pain. Um, and that's what this sermon was born out of. I'm writing a book right now called Trees of Righteousness, and if you look in your bulletin, you see that the title of today's uh, sharing is Trees of Righteousness. I'm not going to give you the whole book today because we would be here for many days. Uh, but what I will do is share um, just a little bit about what the Lord has been revealing in me uh, as I've been discovering his, in his word. Sorry, my phone just rang, so that's why I was distracted for a second there. The story starts in 1973. And if you had been at the little red schoolhouse at the, at the junction of Marston Road and Beetle Road in Richmond, Maine, on a spring day, in May or so of 1970, actually 74, sorry, it was 74, uh, you would have seen a lady that was five feet tall and a little seven-year-old boy and another little five-year-old boy and a one-year-old toddler. And they would have been digging in the ground in front of the little red schoolhouse uh, 
on, on Beetle Road there at the, the junction of Beetle Road and Marston Road, and they would have been planting a scraggly little four-foot-tall blue spruce that the lady had just bought from a tree nursery. And in the heart of the, the oldest of, of those three boys, that was me, in the heart of the oldest of those three boys, looking at that tree today, we were burying uh, and planting that tree as a memorial. You see, our family was coming apart. We were going through terrible pain. A divorce was happening. A separation, the rending apart of love was being uh, replaced by pain and dysfunction and trauma. And as we planted that little tree that day, and I remember the day well, my mom said, this tree is to signify to us that even in pain, there's new life. And she was referring mostly to the fact that our family was going through this separation and divorce. But in my mind, I was thinking back a few years. You see, just um, about three years before that, we lived in Ethiopia, in East Africa, and my, my parents were missionaries. <clears throat> and my mom was pregnant with the third of us. I was the oldest and then my brother Scott. But there was another one who came and his name was Jimmy. And Jimmy lived for about 24 hours. And then he died. Jimmy was the only one of us who had red hair. I had brown hair, my brother Scott had blonde hair, and Jimmy had red hair. And that's about all I knew about Jimmy because I never got to know Jimmy. I saw him. And on that day uh, that he passed away, we cried, we wept, we prayed. And my dad put him in a shoebox because he was premature and took him on a motorcycle up to Mount Mengesha in the Ethiopian highlands and buried him at the foot of a huge tree. So as we planted the, the blue spruce, which is a really good tree for New England, as we know, um, <clears throat> as we planted that blue spruce a few years later, in my mind, this was Jimmy's tree. And I was thinking about Jimmy as we planted that tree. Well, as I say, that's 1974. Now, fast forward quite a few years up to 2020, just before the outbreak of COVID that grounded us all and changed everything for, for many of us and took many lives as well. Uh, we were just ready to go to Japan. From here, we had moved to Newport for 10 months and then to Washington State where I was attached to an aircraft carrier for two and a half years. So it was February of 2020, but before we went to Japan, we wanted to make kind of a, a victory lap of, of friends and family, and so one of those stops was to go to Maine. 
And we went up to Maine and visited folks that we loved up there and spent a little bit of time. And one of the trips, the side trips that I did, was to drive to the old homestead. And I drove down Marston Road and I stopped at my grandparents' old house where they had lived. And sadly, it was in disrepair. Whoever bought it hasn't kept it up. Um, It doesn't look very good. Certainly doesn't look like it did in those days. But I drove the next quarter of a mile, and as I, as I came down the road to the T-intersection with Beetle Road, I expected to see a U-shaped dirt driveway with an old red schoolhouse converted into a home that we had lived in in the early 70s for a couple of years. And I was thinking maybe a 10-foot tree by now. You see, that tree was kind of scraggly. We were very poor. We couldn't afford much of a tree. We had to buy the the least expensive tree on the lot. And it was not symmetrical. It was crooked. The trunk was a little bent. It wasn't even nice enough to be a Christmas tree in your house. But we had put it in the ground, and that was Jimmy's tree. But as I drove down Marston Road that day, I could not believe what I was looking at. It was amazing. The dominant feature was not the new house because the old house had burned to the ground, I found out later. It was not the, U dri- the U-shaped driveway, which was dirt and now paved and going in a different direction to a, a, a different orientation on the lot. No, the dominant feature that drew my eyes was 100 feet tall. Jimmy's tree was tall and strong and vibrant, and full of life and fragrance, offering life and support and nurture to everything around it. Jimmy's tree was no longer stunted and crooked. It was symmetrical and beautiful, and it smelled wonderful because I stopped, and I got out of the car, and I went and knocked on the door, and I said, I'm going to take pictures of your tree. (laughs) And they said, okay, whatever. I explained a little bit, but it reminded me of this text. It reminded me of our God who takes what is broken and beat up and stunted and rotten and dysfunctional, and he recreates He turns it into something beautiful and vibrant and strong and life-giving. You see, I thought that God's creative power probably stopped on day six of creation. But I've discovered over the last few years that it just shifted character a little bit. God still calls into being that which does not exist. He still makes things new, but it's a recreation process now. I'm looking forward to seeing when he does that with this planet again. Aren't you? So don't take my word for it. Grab your Bible, and we'll come back to Isaiah, but I want to take you to Romans first. Romans 4. Romans 4 talks about this, and and Paul 
in his indomitable style of, of writing sentence after sentence after sentence after sentence after clause after clause after clause. And those of us who have studied Greek are still saying, when we think about Paul's writing, um, it's amazing, but it's deep and it's not easy to read. Peter even said so later on. But Paul, in Romans 4, is drawing a sharp distinction between the life that's based on faith and the life that's based on works. He's preaching to the young church at Rome, and he's reminding them that it's not what you do that matters, it's who you know and who you trust and who you've placed your trust in that matters. So he's trying to pull them away from a works-oriented theology where they used to, as Jews, think that if they were good enough, they would be saved. So Paul writes these long clauses and long sentences, and let's start in chapter 4 of Romans with verse 16. And I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. Paul's in the middle, literally, of a series of sentences, and I'm not going to do all of the background work. I'll leave you to do that later. Please double-check me. Uh, make sure I'm not just cherry-picking here. Um, but Paul was saying, listen, you don't have to live like we used to. We don't have to do that anymore. And he says, for this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Okay, gasp for breath. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead, and listen to this phrase, and calls into being that which does not exist. This is the key phrase. He calls into being that which does not exist. This version up here says, calleth these things which not, which be not as though they were. That's probably King James. Thank you. He calls into being that which does not exist. When I read this before, I always thought this was talking about God's creative power. But now I've started to see that God's creative power continues. It just has shifted character. It is now a recreative power. And I want to keep this as a mental bookmark for you because in a minute we're going to see how this applies to your life. We're going to see how this applies to my life. We're going to see how this applies to the life of my family because this tree that we planted in 1974 was new life for us. And my family went through wrenching pain, and we still, all of us, bear the scars of that pain, even to this day. However, God has called into being that which does not exist, and He has recreated our lives in such a way that that dysfunction has turned into something very beautiful. That trauma has been repurposed by God. The enemy meant it to tear us apart. He meant it to kill us. 
He meant it to rend us and tear us, but God has repurposed that pain and made it into something that does a remarkable work. He took that seven-year-old boy who grew up carrying all that trauma and became a very selfish, self-centered addict. And he brought into being that which did not exist and recreated me into a son of the highest. So let's see how it works. Back to Isaiah, please. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. And I'm reading from the New American Standard, but I'm going to alter the words in my own translation, which I went through and did a long time ago in my study. The King James comes closest, I think, to the original intent, actually, in this, which is unusual uh, in my mind. So I'm going to read part of this, and part of it will be my own translation. It says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Isaiah 61. This is the first three verses. And this is now the keynote of my life. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted or the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they will be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I think we need to unpack this a little bit because like most things in the scriptures, the deeper you look, the more beautiful it gets. When you start to peel back the layers and, and you do some, some in-depth study, you begin to see that there is great depth here. So what we're talking about is a divine transaction. And this is the only way that something like this would ever work because human beings could never pull this off. God says, give me your darkness and I'm going to give you light. He says, give me your sinful propensities. Give me your addictions. Give me those strongholds that Satan has established in your life. And I am going to give you beauty and glory. He says, give me the garbage and I'm going to make it into gold. Fairy tales talk about stuff like this but nothing comes close to what God is doing and has done and offers you to do today, now. 
Nothing comes close. So just taking a look. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me. Who gets anointed? Who gets anointed? We do. Kings get anointed, yes. Priests in the Old Testament, they were anointed. It was a, an anointing ceremony. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Uh, Psalm 23, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Sheep get anointed. Anointing is a sign of healing and setting apart, both. If someone is anointed, then they're set apart for a particular purpose. They're marked for special outpouring of the Lord's Spirit. We anoint people who are ill or who have requested the elders of the church to come and anoint them. Sometimes they're not able to request it themselves, but a a relative does on their behalf. So this is referring to being set apart. Um, Let me take just a minute to talk about the context of, of what's happening here. The prophet Isaiah was called to preach very solemnly to the children of Israel and Judah and to ask them to return to their first love because they had left the Lord and they had followed after false gods. And we look at this from thousands of years later in our suits and our dresses and whatever we're wearing and, and, and our comfortable church, and we look back at them and we say, how could they have done that? Foolish people. How could they have left the Lord? Well, they did some of the same things we do, just in slightly different ways. And we do some of the same things they did in slightly different ways. the worship that they were going after was very compelling. The worship of those false gods was very interesting. It was very fleshly. And it was very easy to fall into that temptation. And most of them did over time. But it's incredibly sad but many of us do that too. We fall into the temptation of putting something else before God. And it might be easy, it might be compelling, it might be addicting, it might be fleshly. It might be wrong. As a matter of fact, it is. So Isaiah was sent to bring the people back and he thundered out some strong prophecies about what would happen if they refused. But he offered them glimpses of what would happen if they accepted. And that's what Isaiah 61 is. 
It's talking about restoration. The same deal is on offer for us today. You see, we have strayed. As individuals, we have strayed. Even as a people, we have strayed. We have not lived completely, truly in a surrendered state. Some of us have besetting sins, pet things that we don't talk about, that we do or look at or engage in or drink or eat or smoke when no one else knows. Friends, I love you, and I'm here to tell you not to do that. Surrender that to the Lord. He will help you. And if he needs to use one of us to help, we are here to help. We need to hold each other accountable and help each other through these things, and we need to get into a place where it's safe to talk about these kinds of things. So Isaiah was calling people back. He was holding out a vision of the future that the Lord had outlined for him. And he says, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to those who are afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted. Um, another definition of the word that is, is uh, translated as brokenhearted is shattered. And I can guarantee that some people within the sound of my voice today are shattered. And that shattering may be uh, because of the loss of a beloved spouse. Or it may be because of your own choices that have led you to a place of dysfunction and darkness. It may be because someone betrayed you and deeply wounded you and shattered you. It may be because of war. It may be because of an accident. I don't know, but God does. Your Lord does know. And He knows exactly what you need. Because He is in the process of recreating and calling into being that which does not exist on your behalf and on my behalf. He's doing it in my life. Here's my question for you. Will you let him do it in yours? He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And I used to think, why is that there? That whole thing about the day of vengeance of our God, right in the middle of all this restoration. But then I realized a lot of people are shattered because of predators. Because people took advantage of their innocence and took from them what should not have been taken. Because there are there are people who have sold themselves out for evil on this planet. Agents of Satan who are bent on destruction. And some of you have met some of these people. 
And everything in you begs for vengeance. And every fiber of you says, he should not live or she should not live. And yet God says, I will take care of it. The day of vengeance of our God, buried right in the middle of restoration, he's saying, I will take care of the vengeance. You don't need to do that. Give me the pain. Give me the agony. Give me the furious uh, rage. Give all that to me, and I will make you into something beautiful. I'll take care of the vengeance, God says. And I'm pointing behind me, not at me. I will take care of the vengeance. You don't need to worry about that anymore. to comfort those who mourn, to grant them beauty instead of ashes. What are ashes? What are ashes? It's the remnants of burning, right? It's what's left after something is consumed by fire. Some of you probably feel like you've been consumed by fire. Some of you feel like your life has been reduced to nothing but ashes. Do you remember what Mordecai threw on himself when he found out that all himself and all his people were to be killed because of one angry person who had a lot of power? Sackcloth and ashes, burlap and ashes. Do you remember what Job sat in as he scraped himself with pieces of pottery, listening to the people that called themselves his friends, telling him that he must be very evil for God to have done this to him. Completely wrong they were, but he sat in ashes. Ashes aren't useful for very much. They're the byproduct of great pain. And in the Bible, they represent great pain. But God says, give me your ashes, and I'm going to give you beauty. This divine transaction, this mysterious exchange, the, the, the cosmic alchemy that makes something out of nothing, God says, it's on offer for you. Do you have ashes in your life? I do. And I've given them to him. And he's making something beautiful out of it. And I am grateful. The oil of joy for mourning. So what's the oil of joy? Keep your finger there in Isaiah, and let's turn to Psalm 133. Psalm 133, and we're going to go to verse, oh, we're going to read the whole thing, it's short. Psalm 133. I love this. This is such rich, vivid imagery. It says, behold, how good and pleasant it is, Psalm 133 for brothers to dwell together in unity. 
It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The oil of joy represents anointing. It represents healing, and it represents setting apart. The oil that was used to anoint Aaron and his sons for the priesthood was a very unique mixture. You can read about it um, in the Pentateuch. You can read about the actual recipe for it. It was also used to anoint Saul and David as kings of Israel. The same recipe. The oil of joy is a very significant biblical concept. And it's talking about being together and being set apart for some holy service. It also talks about healing. The oil of joy for mourning. And and here we are as a church. We've just lost a key pillar of our community. A man who gave himself for decades, week after week after week, to be here to serve us. And it hurts that he has passed. We will miss him. We do miss him. Florine, most of all, my dear sister, I trust that at some point you will hear these words. I love you and I'm so sorry that this has happened. Most of all, you feel this pain. But God says, I will call into being that which does not exist. I will recreate. I will give you the oil of joy in exchange for your mourning. And we say, how is this possible? How can God do this? But he is the creator. He can. And he offers it to us. Beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. Have you considered, I'm going back to beauty just for a minute. Have you considered that our God is an aesthetic God? He's a God who loves beauty. Think about some of the most beautiful places you've ever been. For some of us, that might have been a a tropical island somewhere with beautiful white beaches and soft breezes. For others, it may be a beautiful mountain retreat with um, a glacier lake nestled in, in, in the bowl of the mountains. For others, it may be sitting and playing or standing and playing in an orchestra, playing some of the most beautiful, beautiful music ever written or singing some of it. For others, it may be the look that you see in your bride's eyes as she walks up the aisle to you for the first time. Our Lord is an aesthetic Lord. And he loves beauty. 
he is offering us beauty. And he's making that available to us in exchange for ashes. He's preparing a place of unparalleled beauty, beauty that is so broad and so comprehensive and so long-lasting that we can't even begin to think about it fully. Beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Ladies, what is the garment of praise? What is that one day in your life when you wore the garment of praise? A wedding garment, right? When, when all of the entire congregation of people around you were looking at you and they were focused on you and your great beauty and praise God for you, it's as it should be. The garment of praise is a garment that, that demonstrates promise. It demonstrates commitment. It embodies beauty. And God says, I'm going to give that to you in exchange for the spirit of heaviness. And you say, what is the spirit of heaviness? And those of you who have mourned before, you know what the spirit of heaviness is. You know that there's a long period that most people go through in the process of grief where they don't feel very much except heaviness. Where getting up in the morning is difficult. Where going to work is difficult. Where putting your clothes on is difficult. Where there's nothing for you but pain at least that's what you feel. So you know the spirit of heaviness. God says, let me exchange with you. I'll take the heaviness and I'm going to give you the wedding garment. I'm going to give you the garment of praise. I'm going to take the heaviness from you and I'm going to make you into what you were originally designed to be. I'm going to call into being that which does not exist on your behalf. Amen. That they may be called trees of righteousness. What does a tree do? Provide shade. It provides shelter. Animals and birds live in trees. For those of us who are human beings who like to breathe oxygen, and that's all of us, what do trees do for us? They give us life. Well, I've missed something. Water. Yes, absolutely. There are many things that trees do. And God is saying, I want you to go through this process. I want you to make the exchange with me so that I can make you into trees of righteousness. Um, these are not average little stunted kinds of trees. These are beautiful, symmetrical, stately, powerful, compelling 
life-giving trees. But notice that there's no glories to the trees here. It says they might be called trees of righteousness. Why? The planting of the Lord. Why? That he might be glorified. It's not about us. It's not about my pain. It's not about your pain, even though you feel it and it's real. It's about him. And it's about you allowing him to recreate in you something that does not exist, to call into being that which does not exist. It's about me allowing him to go into my heart and do that divine, cosmic, mysterious surgery that is so hard for us to understand and make us into something beautiful and permanent. I'm here to tell you that my work is to deal with pain, and I do a lot. My phone has rung twice since I stood up here by my executive officer back in Chicago. He would not be calling me today unless there's some emergency happening. So he's frustrated because he's hitting voicemail. So there's more pain for me to deal with, I'm sure, after this. But I'm here to tell you that pain is transitory. It is temporary. It is not permanent. It will go away. It's here and it's real. But God will call into being that which does not exist for you on your behalf, and that is real. That is permanent. That is life-changing. That is what you will take to heaven with you. Because only in that place will we finish the process of growing up into full trees of righteousness. Only in that place, unencumbered with the chains of sin, will we complete the process. And I'm here to tell you, (laughs) I say complete, and I'm probably wrong. It's probably going to be an ongoing process forever. However, the process of growth continues. It starts here, though, and for some of you, it starts today. Some of you have not let the Lord do this in you before. And I would be wrong if I did not give you the opportunity today, and I will. So here's my question. Knowing what's on offer for you, hearing the divine transaction that is being given to you, whether you're an adult or a child, who's in? Who's going to say, yes, I accept? Who's going to step up and say, I'm leaving the darkness behind me. I'm leaving the evil habit behind me. I'm leaving my anger behind me. 
I'm leaving my rage and my pain over what that person or people did to me or said about me. I'm leaving it behind me, and I'm going to stand up and walk into the newness of life as a tree of righteousness. Stand to your feet if that's your, your prayer. Amen. I'm going to pray for you. Then we have a closing hymn <clears throat> and a singing benediction, apparently. And then I'm going to come and pray for you again, even after that. So let me pray for you now. Lord God, your, your people have stood to their feet. Not because of anything that I have said but because of the work of your Spirit on all of our hearts. I am very grateful. And I ask that you will ratify and solidify the decision that hearts have made here today. That they will accept fully and not just stand because someone else next to them stood, but that they will accept fully what you have offered to them that you will take the darkness and give them light. Many of them have been hurt in many profound ways. Lord, in your name, Jesus, I ask for healing for them. I ask that they will allow you over time to continue to draw them deeper into the process of restoration and recreation. It doesn't just happen once. that they will reach out to you when they hurt and give you the pain, that they will surrender it to you, that they will forgive people whom they need to forgive, and then when the time is right, that they will tell the story to those who need to hear it so that you can be glorified. These things I pray in your holy and precious name, Jesus. Amen.